You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Uh, title of the sermon is Hungry Hearts. Hungry Heart, the title comes from uh, not just our text, but um, a song title from uh, The Boss, Bruce Springsteen. And some of you know that song. And you'll see where it comes into play, not the song, but you'll see where the title comes into play a little bit later in the sermon. We're in Colossians this fall. Uh, We're kind of like in the middle of our series in Colossians. We're looking at some of the more pivotal passages in Colossians, talking about the issue of discipling our minds, learning how to think right, uh, to position ourselves for spiritual growth. And we have a passage here that we're going to look at in just a moment in the middle of chapter 2 in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And the text that we're going to look at officially is verses 15 through 23, however, I have a late addition to that, and, and it's not going to be on the screen. I want to I reach back a little bit before this passage in verses 8 through 10 of Colossians 2. I'm going to include this because I, I just felt led to do that um, late in the week as I was preparing this. So I want to read um, verses 8 through 10. It won't be on the screen. And then uh, after I finish verse 10, we'll jump right into verse 15. So here's what Paul writes in verse 8 of Colossians 2. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in him, watch this, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity. Everybody say fullness. That's going to be a key word tonight, fullness. He says, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have come to fullness in him, who is the head of every ruler and authority. Now we're going to pick it up in verse 15. You can follow along on the screen. And having disarmed the powers and authorities... He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, everybody say therefore. Therefore. This word therefore, it's very important. He's saying because this has happened, because you've been set free, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels, we're going to pause here, the worship of angels disqualify you. Just a brief comment, that word worship here in the Greek, it's a different Greek word than the usual Greek word in the New Testament translated worship. This occurrence of the word worship, rather than thinking of it as worship in the sense of honoring or exalting, We can better understand it to mean invoking or praying to. And you'll see why that's important in just a moment. Verse 19. Uh, Such a person, verse 19, such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. 
They have lost connection with the head. Of course, the head is Christ, the source of life. From whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. All right, that's our text. We've got a lot to unpack, and uh, we're going to get to that in just a moment, but I want to pause and pray with you. And then we'll, we'll kind of unpack all of this. Just take a deep breath. Be aware of God's presence in the room. Now, Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you. We set aside everything else that we could be thinking about. And we position ourselves at your feet, longing for an encounter with you and a word from your throne. So may your kingdom be established in our lives tonight. And may we humbly receive whatever you have for each one of us individually and as a church body. May your agenda be carried out in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what we just read is a short passage in the middle of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this ancient church in the city of Colossae in Asia Minor. And what was happening not only in Colossae, but really all over the Greco-Roman world, is that there was a wide, wildly popular religious movement called Gnosticism. Everybody say Gnosticism. In fact, I want to show you this slide on the screen just to give you uh, the meaning of the word Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And so in the ancient world, if you were referring to the Gnostics, you would literally be calling them the knowers. And Gnosticism it, it was a religious movement, but it wasn't like a centralized, coherent religious institution with a hierarchy of leadership or anything like that. It was a really loose, free-flowing movement, actually very similar in a lot of ways to the New Age movement today. You know, the New Age movement is not like one single centralized religious institution or anything like that. Um, the New Age movement is like amorphous. It can take different forms and different shapes depending on the person. They just kind of grab different ideas and different practices and techniques, and, and it's kind of a hodgepodge. And, and so it can look very different from one person to the next. And, and that's very similar to the way Gnosticism functioned in the ancient world. Um, Gnostics would borrow ideas from different religious faiths. Like, like one particular Gnostic group might borrow ideas from Egyptian religion, Another Gnostic group might borrow ideas from Greek paganism. 
And then, as we're going to see in a moment, there were even Gnostic groups that would borrow from the Jewish religion or even the Christian religion. And so they would kind of just take what they like, like a, like a religious buffet, and put it all together, and it was their little concoction. So when you're talking about Gnostics in the ancient world, you're not talking about any one way of thinking. It could be, it could be very different, depending on the group. But there were a few ideas that all Gnostics did share. And one of the ideas that Gnostics believed in is they believed that in the spiritual world, there was this pantheon of angels, spiritual beings. And they believed that all of these different angelic beings had different rankings. There was like a hierarchy. Some of them had more authority than others. And these angels had different roles and responsibilities. So for example, some angels had a certain degree of influence over your finances and your business. There were angels who had authority and influence over your health. There were angels who might have had influence over your um, fertility, your sexuality, and basically every aspect of human life and human society, there were, there's an angel for that. You know, that just came to me. Um, so you have all of these different angelic beings of different ranks, responsibilities, and roles. And so for the Gnostics... Their mentality was, if we can just gain enough knowledge about this world of angels, and, and if we could just learn and gain knowledge on who these angels are and what their rankings are and what their roles and responsibilities are and how to invoke each one of them, then if we can gain that knowledge, we can then use that knowledge and we can manipulate these different angels to do what we want them to do and improve our lives right now. So that if you have a need in your health, well, if you have the knowledge to know which angel to appeal to and how to do so, you could get that angel to do something that will improve your health. Same thing with your finances or, or any other aspect of your life. So you can see how Gnosticism became a wildly popular movement. You know, the idea that we can have secret knowledge into this angelic realm and manipulate certain angels at the right time in the right way and improve our lives right here and right now. Well, the big question is, how do you gain this knowledge? How does this knowledge come? And for the Gnostics, the way that you gain this knowledge is by having certain visions and mystical spiritual experiences. If we can just have enough visions and spiritual experiences, then we can gain more knowledge about the angelic realm so we can use them. Well, how do you have these visions and these experiences? Well, the Gnostics believe the way you get more visions and spiritual experiences is by subjugating your body. Because all Gnostics believed that your body is evil. In fact, the whole physical material world is evil. And we've got to find ways to break free from this physical world. Very similar to the way Buddhism uh, approaches the physical world. We've got to get set free from, from this bondage of, of physical material life. Uh, and so the Gnostics would say, your body, our bodies are holding us back. So we've got to find a way to subjugate our bodies so that we can be freed up to have these visions. And different Gnostics would approach that in different ways. Some Gnostics might practice a lot of heavy-duty fasting. Some might actually literally beat their bodies. But it, it appears that this particular Gnostic group in Colossae that Paul's referring to, 
they were borrowing ideas from Jewish faith and religion, and so their way of subjugating their bodies was by practicing, you know, the rigid dietary laws of the Jewish faith. They, they kept a very strict kosher diet. They practiced Sabbath and observed all of the rigid code of Sabbath laws that were out there. And also they wanted to observe all of the Jewish feasts and festivals. So if you put all of it together, here's how these people were approaching their lives. They said, if we can just subjugate our bodies by observing the Jewish feasts and festivals, observing the strict Sabbath code, and also by keeping a strict kosher diet, then we will be set free spiritually to have all of these visions and these mystical spiritual encounters and experiences. And through those visions and experiences, we're going to gain more and more knowledge of this whole world of angels out there, this whole hierarchy. We're going to learn more and more about them and who these angels are, what their authority is, what their role and rank and responsibilities are, and then use that knowledge to get these angels to do what we want them to do right here and right now. Everybody with me so far? I just threw a lot of information at you, I understand. But I think if you can keep that in your mind, it's going to help you make sense of what Paul's doing in this passage. So when we read Paul's letter here, and we read this section, it's kind of like listening to one end of the phone conversation. And so you have to kind of, you know, imagine what's going on on the other side. And and it appears that what was happening is that these Jewish Gnostics in Colossae we're looking down on the Christians there, saying, you, you Christians, you're missing the boat. You're missing out because all you do is just focus on Christ. You're limiting yourself to Christ. And Christ is part of what's out there, and he certainly can help you. But Christ is only part of what's out there. He's just like a little slice. He doesn't have the fullness He's just got a tiny bit of it. And if you would just, we're not saying you should ignore Christ, but in addition to Christ, if you would just open yourself up to all of these other angels, then you'll get the full benefit. You'll have the fullness. Remember, that was one of their terms. They they talked about the fullness of what's out there. And that's why Paul's saying in verse 9, no, 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 Colossians, don't listen to them. The fullness of deity dwells in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you have the fullness. There's nothing else you need. But these Gnostics were lying to the Colossians, the the Colossian Christians, saying you're you're restricting yourself to Christ who has just one little slice of, of what can help you. Open yourself up to all of these other angels and they could really work for you and and do what you need. But if you're going to have all of that knowledge of who's out there, you've got to have the kinds of experiences and visions that we claim to have But if you're going to have those visions and experiences, you've got to subjugate your bodies. And the problem with you Christians is you don't observe these feasts and festivals. You don't practice Sabbath. You don't restrict yourself to a kosher diet. So you're you're not following those practices of subjugating your body. Therefore, you're never going to have these visions and experiences. And you'll never have the knowledge that we have because you're, you're limiting yourself to Christ. So you Christians... You Christians, you you are disqualified from the race before it's even begun. That's what they're saying. And so right here in this part of the letter, Paul is bringing some correction to the Christians, saying, don't listen to these people. And I want to say tonight two things about Paul's response. I want to highlight two things about how Paul responds 
that I think will help us in our particular context. The first thing is this. You know, Paul, as we read Paul, not just here, but throughout his entire corpus, Paul is not against adhering to certain religious festivals and holy days and celebration. Paul, Paul would say, if you want to have a Passover meal, go for it. There's nothing inherently wrong with observing a religious feast or festival. And Paul's not against it if someone wants to worship on one particular day rather than another. If, if you want to observe Sabbath practice, knock yourself out. There's nothing inherently wrong with doing so. And Paul's also not against it if someone has personal convictions about their diet, if they, if they prefer to, to observe a kosher diet. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. As long as it's personal preference, or maybe it's just part of your culture and you want to be sensitive to your culture and not make waves. Or, or maybe it's just a, a personal conviction that you've developed. Because sometimes people can develop personal convictions that God may not necessarily expect of everyone. Like for myself, I have personal convictions for my own life and for my household that I recognize God may not necessarily put those same convictions on every single Christian at Village Church or anywhere else. It's a personal conviction. And Paul would say, go for it. He'd be fine with that. You know, follow your convictions. Follow the leading of the Spirit in your life. But where Paul would have an issue and where the New Testament would have an issue is when we take our personal convictions on things and we want to turn them into a universal law that we expect everyone to follow and we judge those who don't. And that's what Paul addresses, for example, in Romans 12 and Romans 14, when people start judging others on the basis of a personal conviction as if it's a universal law. That's when we begin getting off track. Or the other side of that is when we think that our personal convictions somehow put us on a higher spiritual plane than everyone else. You know, that it's the mentality that, you know, just to use an example, somebody that might say, well, you know, at our house... We don't even own a television, but, you know, lesser Christians do. Or, or, you know, I'm a vegetarian. I don't eat meat because I have a very tender heart and I'm very close to God. But there are, there are inferior Christians who just, they're just not there yet. And see, that's when we start getting off track as if that somehow increases our standing before God. That's what the whole letter to the Galatians is about. Paul's saying, Galatians, folks. You're putting yourself back into bondage the moment you think that your deeds, your rules, your regulations, your standards, your disciplines somehow improves upon what Christ accomplished for you on the cross. It's, it's like you're changing the whole game now, and now you're back to trying to climb this ladder to get to God out of your own grit and will and determination, trying to transform yourself from the outside in, rather than learning how to rest in God's grace and God's mercy and God's love. And as you yield to that, the Holy Spirit transforms you from the inside out. So it's like the whole foundation is upended, is what's happening. Listen. The foundation for the Christian life, I was just reading this today in, in the beginning of Romans 5, the foundation for the Christian life is the character of God as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, the victory he won on the cross. That's where our life comes from. That's where our worth comes from. That's where our righteousness comes from. 
And when you say yes to Jesus and just simply surrender to his agenda, and as I said, we have water baptisms. When you make that public profession of faith, when you make that kind of decision, you pledge yourself to Christ, the very Spirit of God comes and dwells on the inside of you. The power of Christ begins to dwell on the inside of you. And as you learn how to yield and cooperate with what the Holy Spirit begins to do on the inside of you, sooner or later, what's on the inside of you begins to work its way out. And your thought patterns change. Your attitudes change. Your relationships change. The way you deal with people, the way you talk with your enemies, all of that changes from the inside out. And it's a work of the Holy Spirit that you you simply cooperate with. How many of you know the longer you follow Jesus and the more faithfully you follow Jesus, your behaviors are going to change? But it's not the case that through your own grit and willpower, you have to transform yourself from the outside in in order to acquire something. Like you're trying to acquire God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's righteousness. What Paul is saying consistently in the New Testament is, no, you've already got that. That's given to you. God's grace, God's mercy, God's love, God's righteousness is given to you for free. And that same love and grace and mercy is what transforms you from the inside out. You got to just simply learn how to yield to that power. But it's not something you're cranking out on your own. That's good news. And what Paul is saying is never go back. Don't go back to that old mentality because the moment you do, you're cutting yourself off from the head, from the source of life, who is Jesus Christ. Amen. So that's the first thing. Now, the second thing is this, and this is going to take us to the heart of, of my sermon and, and the meaning of our title tonight. I've been talking the last couple weeks. We've been, we've been pretty transparent here these last couple weeks talking about how even as a thriving Christian, even as a mature believer, there are times when you are not always going to feel completely fulfilled. There's always going to be at least seasons in your life where something just feels incomplete, where there's still kind of an ache in your heart. There's still a little bit of a, a hunger that is there, and you're not necessarily going to have this permanent, unbroken lifetime of perfect fulfillment. That's just not reality. That's not reality. And anybody who tells you different, they're selling you a bill of goods. Okay, you're, you're going to have seasons where you feel a little bit incomplete, where you're going to be a little hungry. That's not just true of non-Christians. That's true of even mature believers. As Bruce Springsteen said, everybody's got a hungry heart. But you see, that hunger even though uh, we, we, it doesn't feel pleasant, even though it's not fun, even though it's, it's nagging, that hunger is actually a gift. It's actually a good thing because it serves as a honing device. It's meant to be a honing device that drives you to consistently keep seeking and pursuing after the Lord. If we didn't feel hungry, we wouldn't pursue him. We would be couch potatoes. And God constantly wants us to be pursuing him and, and seeking after him. And here's the great thing about God is that however close you get to Christ, there is always more depths to explore. We're going to be exploring it for eternity. So no matter how close you get to the Lord, until we see him face to face, there's always going to be some degree of incompleteness. Even the apostle Paul, 
admitted this about himself. And I can't think of anyone with a more mature faith than the Apostle Paul. But Paul says it like this. He says, I see through a glass darkly. And so no matter who you are, it's always going to be dark. There's always going to be some sense of incompleteness, a lack of fullness until Christ returns and his kingdom is fulfilled. So that hunger is there to keep us pursuing the Lord and yearning for his return when everything, all wrongs are made right. So that hunger is actually a good thing. But here's the thing, that, that sense of hunger, that emptiness can also be a sales pitch that the enemy uses against you. Where the enemy comes along and says, what's that? Are you still, are you still not completely fulfilled? You're still a little bit incomplete. You still have a little bit of an ache and a hunger there. That's because Christ is not enough. And you're going to need to look elsewhere. Maybe this person over here or this activity or this this pastime or whatever, but there's something else that you need because Christ is not enough. And I've seen this happen so many times throughout my life in ministry. So many people who give up on Christ altogether because they say, you know what, I tried that and it didn't work. It didn't completely fulfill me. Which first of all presupposes that we're always supposed to be like 100% permanently fulfilled all the time. As if there's a magic pill somewhere out there. If you just take this magic pill, boom, you'll never have a sense of unfulfillment ever again. Well, that's people's expectation sometimes. And when it doesn't deliver, they just abandon the Christian life altogether because the enemy comes along and says, that's because Christ is not enough. You need something else. This is not working. Something else will work. And the moment we start listening to that sales pitch, we're falling into the trap. The truth of the matter is that though you're empty at times, and sometimes painfully empty, it's not because Christ is not enough. It's because you simply don't yet have enough of Christ. Christ is enough. That's not the problem. The problem is you don't yet have enough of Christ, and you won't until his kingdom comes in its complete fulfillment. There will always be some measure of hunger, some measure of emptiness there that's meant to drive you to Christ. But if you start listening to the enemy who says, it's because Christ is not enough, maybe this person will fulfill it, maybe this thing will fulfill it, then the moment you start listening to that, he's reeling you in. It's the same thing with marriage. I'm going to speak very frankly. Even with the healthiest marriages, listen, there are going to be times where you're not always going to feel completely fulfilled. Don't nod your heads, uh, wives and husbands, but you, there's always going to be, there's going to be seasons where you don't feel complete, where you're going to be thinking, um, I just don't feel understood. I don't feel valued. I don't feel appreciated. I don't know if my spouse finds me attractive as, as they used to, or they don't laugh, laugh at my jokes anymore or whatever. And there's always going to be some measure of incompleteness in there, even with The best marriages on the planet. Because I'm going to tell you the truth, regardless of what you learned from Jerry Maguire, there's not a person on this planet who can complete you. There's not a person on this planet. Human beings are not capable of filling that void. And part of the problem sometimes is that we expect that. And that when it doesn't happen, we get discontent. And the enemy comes along and starts giving you the sales pitch. And says, you know what, this person over here will appreciate you. This person over here will value you. This person uh, finds you attractive. This person will laugh at your jokes. This person's a perfect match for you. And if you're not committed to your spouse for the long haul through thick and thin, 
then all of a sudden that hunger that you have is actually going to lead you astray. Same thing with your relationship with Christ. Same thing with your relationship with Christ. Um, If we're not completely sold out and committed, no matter how we feel, if we're not not just totally determined to continue in that direction, then that hunger will actually drive us in a different direction, and now we start listening to the sales pitch. And there's so many sales pitches out there depending on, on the hook, depending on the bait that you'll go after. If it's, if it's a religious system that will do it, then the enemy will use a religious sales pitch. If it's fame, then he'll use a fame sales pitch. You'll be thinking, if I could just get that lucky break, if I could just get to this level in my career, then I'll feel fulfilled. If it's a materialism type of thing, then he'll give you a materialistic sales pitch. If I could just get this particular model car, or if we could just move into this neighborhood, then my life will be settled. If it's a romantic relationship that you think will fill that void, he'll use a, rom- a romance sales pitch. He'll use whatever. There's, there's so many sales pitches out there. So here's the thing in closing. Three things that you got to know. I'm going to ask John Sponsler to come to the piano. The rest of the band, just stay, uh, stay tight for just a moment. I'll have you come up. But I'm going to ask John to just begin to play, just to keep me accountable to keeping this, the closing. First of all, number one, you got to know that the sales pitch is a lie. Everybody, look at me, everybody's got a hungry heart. Everybody's got a hungry heart. And if somebody says otherwise, they're selling you something. And even if they're sincere, they're deluded because it never delivers. We know this. Some of you in this room, you have bought into all of the sales pitches out there. You, you have tried everything else. You've dove headfirst into every walk of life. And you know that no matter how thrilling the moment may be, it never permanently satisfies. It never permanently fulfills. It may give you a momentary buzz. But you know what? Heroin will do that. Cocaine will do that. It may be a wild experience, but it doesn't fulfill it's a lie. The sales pitch is a lie. Second thing is this, and I, I just feel like this is an important point to make. The very thought, the very assumption that you have a right to be fulfilled all the time is itself a lie. Just think about this. Just in the last 24 hours, 30,000 children around the world have starved to death. We live in a broken, oppressed, suffering world. And we're insulated that to some degree here in our comfortable United States life. But we live in a broken world where there are hurricanes that can just blast in and take everything you have, earthquakes, famines all around the world. In Africa, there are human atrocities. There are genocides taking place, tribes killing off one another for decades. It's a painful, oppressed world. And in the midst of this broken world, what makes anybody think that we have a right to permanent, complete fulfillment all the time? It's a fallen world and we're not going to be fulfilled Not now, not totally. Even in Christ, listen, in Christ, there are going to be times where you have mountaintop experiences. Anybody anybody know what I'm talking about? I've had a few of those myself in prayer, in worship, 
where it's like I'm on the Mount of Transfiguration and I just the beauty, the mystery, the glory of God just becomes so real and so profound and it's overwhelming. I can hardly speak. And you have these wonderful mountaintop experiences where you feel on top of the world and you wish you could just set up a camp right there and just stay there for the rest of your life. But no matter how beautiful and profound those mountaintops are, there comes a point you've got to be willing to come back down the mountain into everyday, ordinary life. You've got to go back to work because you've got to earn money because you've got to pay your bills, which means you're going to have to deal with some cranky people. You're going to have to go back home and change diapers and do the laundry and disinfect the turf. So the mountaintops are wonderful and we're grateful when we have them. But the reality is in this world, there's always going to be a feeling of emptiness at some point. It's part of being human in this fallen world. But here's the last point, and this is the most important point. Even though there's emptiness, sometimes painfully so, Christ is enough. And we'll never have enough of him until his kingdom comes in all of its fullness. But he is enough, and it's enough for me to know, even when I feel incomplete, even when I feel hungry, it's enough for me to know that I'm loved, that I have unsurpassable value in his eyes because Jesus paid an unsurpassable price, that I, even in my incompleteness, I'm forgiven and I'm made righteous in his sight. And it's enough for me to know who I am in Christ in his eyes and what my eternal inheritance is that, that in reality, from God's perspective, I am a rich man and you're rich. You don't need to be craving after this perpetual fullness, but God does want us to be consistently pursuing him. And that's why the hunger is there in the first place. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.